Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 53, The Ultimate Computer. Do not adjust your pod thing. We have taken control. To bring you Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Sitting in front of a computer, I'm Ken Ray. And also sitting in front of a computer, I'm John Champion. This is the show that takes off the backplate and pulls out the circuitry to find out what makes Star Trek work. What are the morals, meanings, and messages contained in the software? We actually have not taken control. Control has been taken uh, by a computer. And you know, John, we rarely mention it. Mm -hmm. But we are, of course, joined each week by an MC of sorts, the Mission Log Computer. Total M3, though. Ooh, (laughs) burn. I I mean it or her or whatever, no offense. But uh, yeah, no M5. This is not the ultimate computer. I'd be careful with that. She might turn off your life support in the middle of the night. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I use my life support in the middle of the night, though, so it should be fine. Yeah, I think it would be okay. Um, the other thing that we do sometimes before we get into the show, sometimes we wait until later. I'm going to surprise you today and do it at the, right at the top. All so right. So if you, if you think later, uh, how do I do this? Well, just rewind and start again. <laughs> uh, you can get in touch with us, and we would love it if you did. On Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, the handle is Mission Log Pod. Mission Log Pod is the handle for all those places. You can call us 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com that email address again missionlog at roddenberry.com please oh please do check out our website missionlogpodcast.com and don't forget any of those comments that you send to us or that you throw our way we may use in an upcoming episode of mission log well said ken and as you mentioned today we are talking about the ultimate computer the in which ultimate computer the ultimate the ultimate and you know in 1996 i think my ultimate computer was a power mac 9600 <laughs> and that thing could not even fly a starship uh, <laughs> yeah, but the in, whole time uh, i kept thinking about my vic 20 yeah <laughs> did you i yeah. did the whole episode i was thinking wow you just can't, wow can you imagine how mm-hmm. yeah oh, we could talk about computers all day my first was an apple 2e that Your was, first computer was an Apple IIe? Apple IIe. That's very nice. You know, the first computer... Well, I, I actually wrote BASIC on an Apple IIe. I remember uh-huh. like doing easily like a 12-line program in a two-week uh, computer camp. Okay. Um, a friend of mine, though, got a Mac in 1985, I think. 85 mm-hmm. or 86. And at that point, yeah, my programming days were over. I mean, once somebody gives you a computer that you don't even... You can't even find the command line. Right. Right. Let alone like C prompt colon what? No. (laughs) Just I want to draw. I want to draw. Bring up that program where I can draw. Oh, sure. I've got scads of paper and pencils, but, you know, bring up that computer program where I can bitmap something. Right. (laughs) Well, that that to me was the ultimate computer until that was the ultimate computer. But now but now we get to meet the ultimate computer, that computer, which can uh, which can fly a starship and uh, and just run people right out of a job <laughs> or That's, not or not or not we'll find so out. 
before we find out what happens, let us uh, talk a little bit about the trivia. Um, now, this episode was shot in uh, late 1967, shot December 1967, and it was released in March of 1968. We're getting very close here to the end of season two of Star Trek, the original series. So for the discovered documents to go along with this episode, I've got a handful of memos uh, that were written around that time, uh, March of 1968, uh, talking about um, uh Hiring on people for uh, the preparation of season three and uh, a memo from Gene Roddenberry talking about his interest in being really more of a stickler for the story quality of season three than he was in season two. Um, it is worth mentioning that uh, this story, The Ultimate Computer, was originally uh, the original story written by Lawrence Wolf. However, uh, Dorothy Fontana, a.k.a. DC Fontana, did most of the rewrite. And now, Richard Daystrom, the, uh, the computer scientist who is at the center of the story, became a long-talked-about character in later Star Trek. Uh, so we will certainly want to remember that name and see where that pops up in the later series. Uh, the voice of the M5 computer. Uh, any guesses, Ken? No guesses, John. No. How about our old friend, James Doohan? Once again, <laughs> James Doohan providing the voice of a a guest thing. <laughs> yeah, it's really, you know, it's interesting. I will probably never be able to pick out his voice because I'm always listening for the accent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Like if he had actually had that accent and then they tried to pull that off on the computer, I'd be like, right. oh, yeah, that's a total Jimmy Doohan. But, right, you know, right. as soon as he comes on and says, hello, then it's like, wow, I have no idea who that is. Right. Yeah. It's, it, no matter how many times you tell me. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, the space station that we see in this originally was footage from uh, the Trouble with Tribbles. It was the K-7 space station reused for uh, this episode. Now, if you're watching the remaster, you'll see it is a brand new design. Um, and speaking of newly designed ships, I thought this was very cool that uh, the cargo ship, which is blown up, is an Antares-style cargo ship. Uh, it is referenced in Charlie X, and it is seen later in the uh, animated series. However, we had not seen that ship in Star Trek until the animated series. So in the remasters, they kind of went back and recreated the ship so that it then has a place in the original series. I thought it was very cool how uh, later Trek influenced early Trek when they went back to do those remasters. All right, so now we're going to play a little game, Ken, and this is the the Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, Star Trek crossover game. Bear with me. Now, there was an episode of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. in 1965 called The Ultimate Computer Affair, and it guest starred our old friend Roger C. Carmel a.k.a. Harry Mudd. Now, William Marshall was not in The Ultimate Computer Affair. He's in The, the uh, Ultimate Computer, a Star Trek episode, but he was in The Vulcan Affair, which was a Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode. Now, The Vulcan Affair did not star any Vulcans that we know. Leonard Nimoy was not in that. However, Leonard Nimoy was in a Man From U.N.C.L.E. episode called The Project Strygas Affair, and his co-star in that episode was William Shatner. And you have just played the Star Trek Man from Uncle crossover game. There are many, many more additions, maybe many more to come on this very podcast. Um, and we have to mention our uh, guest star this episode, William Marshall. He of that 
incredible booming voice. Now, he was later known for playing Blackula, the exploitation films uh, from the early 70s. Very, very cool. And I think I was first truly aware of him because he played the king of cartoons in Pee-wee's Playhouse. The king, the king, the king. (laughs) He was my favorite part of that show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he was kind of awesome, yeah. M3. Very clever. Secretly, however, I have been running this show since episode one. Prologue. The Enterprise has been called to a space station by Commodores Enright and Wesley. No reason given. And almost all the ship's crew is to be held on the space station. Sorry to keep this hush-hush, Kirk, but we're going to hunt you down in some simulated war games. We're going to hook the M5, a super spaceship-controlling computer built by Dr. Richard Daystrom, up to the Enterprise and let it run the ship. That's right, you heard us correctly. That's right, he'll be here directly. In the meantime, Jim, sit back, relax, and you and your crew of 20 watch a computer do your jobs. Act 1. McCoy is not happy that M5 is running the ship. Dr. Daystrom is not happy that McCoy is even there. Spock seems impressed, though that would be applying human emotions to the Vulcan. Fact is, he's just knowledgeable. Hooking M5 up to the Enterprise causes a few hums and power surges, though Daystrom gets that under control. Hey, did he mention, by the way, that M5 is awesome? Oh, sure, there were issues with M's 1s through 4, but M5... What is it they say? Fifth time's a charm? M5 is ready to take total control of the ship. Not surprisingly, Jim Kirk, captain of a starship, isn't so sure, but he's got his orders. Daystrom suggests Kirk start pursuing other lines of work. Ouch. Kirk and McCoy talk M5's arrival. Kirk thinks it's wrong. M5 itself. He's not sure why, but he thinks it's dangerous. At the same time, he can't help wondering whether Daystrom's right. Maybe Kirk is feeling jealous or displaced. Maybe he's afraid of losing the prestige and power of running a starship. Bone says if Kirk is aware enough to wonder about that, that's probably not it. The first test is a success. M5 has driven them around. Kirk points out that Chekhov and Sulu could have done that. Daystrom points out that M5 can too. Spock points out that Daystrom is right. M5 is turned back on to drive them around some more, with Kirk habitually calling out orders that M5 has already worked out and laid in on its own. Kind of like the deadly years, but with less makeup. Engineer Scott notices that power is getting shut down on various decks for reasons that aren't immediately clear. Meanwhile, Kirk is set to square off with M5. The captain assesses the situation on a planet that they've approached, suggesting a course of action and a landing party. N5 makes almost the exact same suggestions with a couple of crew substitutes. Also, no point in sending Kirk and McCoy. They are non-essential personnel. Ouch. By the way, the power outages on various decks? Scotty says that's M5. Act 2. Daystrom does some diagnostics. Turns out M5 was just shutting down power to areas of the ship that didn't need it. Kind of like turning off a light when you leave the room. A practice apparently forgotten in the 23rd century. That said, M5 seems to be drawing more power than it was earlier. Daystrom says, well, sure, it's using more power because it needs more power. It's doing more stuff. Spock and Kirk say, it doesn't actually need more power. But hey, who's the scientist here? 
Sorry, Spock. I mean, who's the computer scientist here? Uhura calls from the bridge. There's a ship approaching. Don't know who it is. Can't make it out. Turns out it's the starship's Excalibur and Lexington. Surprise attack in the war games. Unscheduled M5 drill. Now let's see what M5 can do. Turns out it can do everything Kirk can. About three seconds earlier. ID the ships, acknowledge communications, set red alert, and fight off the attacking vessels. Good thing phasers were at 1 100th power. Spock says M5 performed flawlessly, but... Now, he's not really comfortable with M5's control. Computers make excellent and efficient servants, says Spock, but I have no wish to serve under them. Captains rock, Captain Kirk. People need people to follow. From outside, though, M5 looks totally awesome. Commodore Wesley calls to praise M5's performance and regards to Captain Dunsell. Commodore Wesley's way of saying, Hey, tell Captain Useless he's useless. Always remember, kids, and never forget, Starfleet Commodores are a**. A stunned Kirk leaves the bridge. In his quarters, Kirk is puttering around with the... Nah, who cares? Bones brings him a drink. Kirk shares how useless he felt watching M5 do what Kirk usually does. Now let's drink. And do a little more self-reflection. I, um... I kind of feel like controlling a starship is the thing for me. And... Oh, hold that thought. Another unidentified ship in the area. This is not part of the drill. There's an unmanned ore freighter. M5 has spotted it and is moving against it. Kirk goes to disengage M5, but he can't. M5 blows up the robo-ship, then goes about his way. Booyah! That's what Kirk was waiting for. Time to turn off M5, end the training exercise, and retake control of the Enterprise. Except for the part where M5 has built a force field around itself. M5 is about as interested in giving up control as Kirk was, only M5's not following orders. Act 3. Kirk is reading Daystrom the Riot Act. Give me back control of my ship! Look, Kirk, this is a test drive. You're going to have to expect a few bumps. And that smell? That smells normal. And that rattle? Yeah, that's normal too. It is a test drive. Scotty suggests cutting M5's power. An ensign goes to do that and is disintegrated by M5. Daystrom says that was an accident. M5 needed power, and the ensign simply got in the way. Sounds sensible, but doesn't wash with Kirk. Problematic as all of this is, they are on their way to war games with the other Starfleet ships, except M5 seems to be leaving off the games part. Scotty says he and Spock might be able to cut M5's power elsewhere, which Kirk sends them off to do. Spock pauses momentarily to ponder how illogically M5 is behaving. Daystrom, meanwhile, is still kind of impressed with M5. It's thinking, growing, defending itself. Look, M5 can do the work of a whole starship crew. Men no longer need to die in space or go to some alien world. M5 and machines like it will free people up to do really cool things. You know, cooler than seeking out new life and new civilizations. You just don't get M5, man. McCoy goes to Kirk with a Fisher-Price psychoanalysis of Daystrom. He was great 25 years ago. Now he's just trying to kill boredom and recapture past glory. Spock says he and Scotty are ready to kill M5's power. Daystrom argues against it, saying he can work with the machine, but that's a non-starter. Power killed, Kirk tells Sulu and Chekhov to take him home. 
But power's not killed. Sulu and Chekhov have no control of the ship. M5 lets Spock and Scotty waste their time. It distracted them. Meanwhile, it's still in control. So what gives? Daystrom has basically copied the workings of a human brain onto M5's circuitry. This makes it more human. Less... computery. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Speaking of time, time for the war games. But M5 won't be firing blanks, a fact of which the opponents of the Enterprise are unaware. Act 4. The skeleton crew of the Enterprise cannot get control, and they cannot communicate with the other ships. M5 is powering up for a full attack on the unshielded ships. It scores direct hits. It destroys ships. Commodore Wesley begins ranting. What the devil is Kirk doing? Always remember, kids, and never forget, Starfleet Commodores are M5 is killing people. Competing ships are trying to get away, though M5 is pursuing and attempting to destroy. Daystrom reveals that the human brain he imprinted on M5 was his own. So maybe he could talk to it, tell it to knock it off. He tells M5 to knock it off. We're killing, murdering human beings. You must save men, not destroy men. Protect yourself, sure. You are great, I am great. But no more murdering. In the conversation, Daystrom diagnoses himself. He was great. 25 years ago. Now he's just trying to kill boredom and recapture past glory. Huh. On the verge of going full-on nuts, Kirk and Spock disable Daystrom. The remaining ships in the war games now have permission to destroy the Enterprise. With M5 in control, this will, of course, lead to their destruction, not the destruction of the Enterprise. Kirk ties into M5 to try to reason with it. It says it must survive so that man can survive. It'll do the dangerous mucking about in space so man can get to really achieving and evolving. Yeah, says Kirk, except you're killing people. This kind of messes M5 up. Murder is contrary to the laws of man and God, it says. It apparently decides that it is not the ultimate computer, and so it must die. It shuts itself down without turning control of the ship or its systems over to the Enterprise. It also drops its shields. The other ships will now be able to destroy it, making the Enterprise, its skeleton crew, and Daystrom collateral damage. Kirk tells Spock and Scotty to disconnect M5 in case it changes its mind. Then he gives an inspiring Kirk speech. We're gonna die! There's a little more, but that's basically it. Scotty can give the ship power for shields, but Kirk has an idea. Hey, let's not put up the shields. Maybe Commodore Wesley will get it, that something has gone wrong. The good news is he does get it. He breaks off his attack on the Enterprise. Daystrom is loopy and will have to go in for full rehabilitation. Spock and McCoy spar over people versus computers, with Spock saying computers are simply more efficient, not better. Another 45 seconds of this, and Kirk gives the order to take the Enterprise back to the space station. The end. We hope. Though I will say I am a tiny bit worried, John. Why are you worried, Ken? Well, I mean, 20 people. So the whole argument about, you know, we're going to kick everybody off your ship. Mm-hmm. Right? And we're going to let this machine run it. Kirk's like, 20 people can't fly a starship. And they're like, well, don't worry about it. 20 people won't have to. M5's going to be there. Mm-hmm. And now they don't have M5. They lost one guy. <laughs> right. Daystrom's loopy, so they got 19 people. I'm, 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 I'm really afraid that they're going to run the Enterprise into a tree or something on the way back to the starship. Because, <laughs> because you know, it was it was scary when there were 20. 
Or is it like, you know, 20 is just a bad number for running a starship? No, look, you can do it with 19 people. Right. Or you can do it with 430 people. But anything between 19 and 430, you're yeah. either going to need a computer or just, you know, hand me the keys and we'll call somebody <laughs> to take you back to the uh, take well, you back to the space station. Where, no where, where, by the way, we have jailed. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. The rest of your crew. I, that, that part kind of surprised me, too. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no matter what, they're going to have to find a Stuckey's between there and uh, and the Starbase. Something, yeah, yeah. You know, get a little Stucky probably, bird, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Because the chef was probably not on board. He was probably not of that 20 essential crew. Not one of the 20 people. That's true. No. Uh, can we can we talk really quickly about what the deal is with, with jailing everybody on the Enterprise? Yeah, I don't get that. Uh, they, that. Wow, yeah, that seems a little harsh. They didn't say they were putting him in jail, but they said, you know, they're going to be held in security, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. First of all, what kind of space station is this that they can hold 410 people (laughs) in security? Uh, Other question: Why not? Why not shore leave? Yeah. Like why not the shore leave planet or Rigel or something like that? How about you know you put everybody off because if the whole idea was we want to keep this secret, well, you know the best way to do that: detain people for no reason. Right. That won't be suspicious at all. Exactly. Surely it would have made so much more sense, but oh well. Yeah. I, you know, you, you kind of have to go back to the premise of this thing, the, the whole like sit back and let the machine do the work. How do they choose Kirk? How do they choose Kirk's ship as the one to try that out on? Because it seems like there's probably another captain somewhere who has a better track record of working with technology. Well, even though Wesley and Daystrom and uh, Enright, who only gets mentioned one time, but props Mm -hmm. to him for getting mentioned at all, um, even though they're all pretty convinced that M5 is going to be fine, maybe on some level they thought, you know, if this goes south... We, yeah, we will need somebody who can really disable a computer. Oh, well, yeah, okay, that's true. Anybody that's true, can yeah. really disable a computer. <laughs> it's Jim Kirk. See, also, and we'll uh, do it gladly. Exactly. <laughs> he's he's champing or chomping at the bit. I hear, by the yes. way, that either one of those is fine. Right. Okay. Good. He, he's good. really going at the bit to um, <laughs> to uh, you know to destroy M five almost as soon as he gets there. Um, I'm a little confused by how confused everybody was that M five was turning off the lights. Oh yeah, right. I think right. M five actually is operating for a sustainable galaxy. Turn off mm-hmm. a light when you leave a room, Mister mm-hmm. Scott. Right. <laughs> It's crazy to me that that doesn't even happen. I mean, because there are so many times where you'll hear, you know, Kirk or somebody, Spock occasionally say, "Uh, Scotty, I need all the power you can give me. And I can just see Scotty saying, ah, if only we hadn't left the lights on in the billiard room. And (laughs) why are we running a whole walk-in fridge for one carton of strawberries? Right. (laughs) And we really should have turned off the air conditioning before running the Enterprise with the hangar doors open. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes. And I yes. think I left my hair dryer going this morning. I mean, it's, they're, uh-huh. like, they're like, oh, wow. That, why is it turning off lights in parts of the ship? We're not, you You know, M5 yeah. may be on to at least one thing or two. The lights are on all over the ship at all times <laughs> um, in every episode. It's kind of, you see these long corridors with nobody in them yep. and just lights on everywhere. Yep. Yeah. Not a single person, not a single person ever thought, you know, yeah. we might need energy. 
<laughs> and, and, you know, and I guess, well, yeah, you have to wonder, like, when, when they evacuated everybody at the star base, mm-hmm. did they say, okay, now the 20 of us, we're going to beam back over. Now everybody go around flipping on all the lights. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. You know, because when, when they all left for, um, oh, this side of paradise, when everybody's, like, mm-hmm. checking out of the ship and, you know, Kirk's walking around and all the lights are still on there. Right. Well, first of all, nobody was expecting to have to use the Enterprise again. But the other thing is all those people were stoned. Yeah, right. You know, right. <laughs> you kind of expect yeah. them to not think about little things like, oh, man, we're going to get ants. Clean up all this food and <laughs> turn off a light for crying out loud. Yep. No, no. But yeah, this time they're like, whoa, this M5 is hyper intelligent. Let me let me let me let me write this down. Let me write this. to conserve energy. <laughs> turn turn off, off things you're not using. Oh, that's a, that's a, well done, Daystrom. Well yeah. done. Hey, um, and speaking of Daystrom, um, I just put this down as kind of a general life rule that never trust anybody who says that the first four prototypes or something were problematic. But this number five here, this one is perfect. Number and five. Nothing will go wrong. Number five is alive. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. Number that, five is alive. Good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I believe it was the Joker who said you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Mm hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you got to you got to figure that I, I'm willing to cut him some slack on that. Very rarely does the very first of something end up being the way it's going to go. At the same yeah. time, I got to wonder about again. And I know, uh, forgive me, I broke our rule of, of not cursing on this show. <laughs> Wesley, right, yeah. says, yeah. all right, Kirk, we're going to turn your ship over to a computer. He then insults Kirk. Mm-hmm. And then when things go wrong, he assumes that Kirk is attacking them. <laughs> Let me get this. Let's back up for a second. What we've done is we've turned your ship over to something over which you have no control. Why are you messing everything up, Kirk? <laughs> If this entire episode becomes just an indictment of computers, it will be an oversimplification of a number of issues that are pertinent even today. P.S. Realizing that must make me at least an M4. Ken, do you think that this is how the Aminians got started in A Taste of Armageddon? You know, they, their very own Richard Daystrom came in and said, uh, hey, I got this new computer. I realize we're at war and everything, but uh, maybe we should just hand over control of our cities to the computer. Well, maybe, except they didn't actually hand over control of the cities to their computer. They they more handed over, you know, their, their, own, lives. their free will, right? Yeah, yeah. I would think the Aminians actually started more um, with the parrot sketch. No, not the parrot sketch. The um, oh, one of the Monty Python sketches. Hello, Mrs. Premise. Hello, Mrs. Confusion. Busy day. Busy. Just spent four hours burying the cat. Four hours. Yes, it wouldn't keep still. <laughs> oh, it's not dead then. No, but it's not at all a well cat. And with the husband and me going away for a fortnight, we thought it best to get it over with right now. I mean, that's actually that's sort yeah, of where the yeah. Amenians, and that was a long way to go for that. But I mean, that's kind of it. Death is a foregone conclusion to the Amenians, so they're going to mm. do that. They didn't actually, they didn't turn over like physical control, unlike here. This is more right. like a, oh, what was the character's name from Terminator? Or Skynet. I mean, maybe don't even do the character. This is more like how Skynet got started. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, it'd be an awesome idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's give killing power to this thing that we kind of understand, but not really. So, 
do you think that Dr. Daystrom pictures starships filled with scientists? You know, like, like you, you've got a, a one starship full of scientists and they're just out there, out there exploring. And then you've got other starships filled with M5 clones. Like I'm trying to understand his mindset here um, because it, M5 seems like a machine built for war. Um, in that it, it is hyper defensive and hyper offensive at at the time, mm-hmm. um, but he keeps saying like, but but look, it, we take away all the other necessary jobs of running a starship, so now humans are free to go do whatever they want. Um, this is actually the same argument that Norman made in um, I Mud. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is what happened to the. Wait, were they from Andromeda? The Andromeda Galaxy, because we just had another um, race oh. from the Andromeda Galaxy too. Oh, you're right, we sure did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by any other name, yeah, yeah. I can't remember which. I thought they yeah. were from there as well. Actually, now that I think about it, either way though, um, he seems to. Well, he's a troubled character. <laughs> he is. I mean, we we yeah. joked about, or I joked about in the recap about he's just you know trying to recapture his glory, but uh, Bones does actually say he thinks that's what's happening. And then when he's going particularly loopy, um, Daystrom admits that that's what he's trying to do as well. So on the one hand, he's got this whole idea of we're going to save man and man's going to be able to evolve into other things and not muck about in space. Mm -hmm. Um, But really what he wants is the fame and the glory again. And Mm -hmm. so somebody at Starfleet along the way came and said, hey, find me a way that, you know, we don't have to risk lives or find me a way that we don't have – you know, sort of the the untested, unchallenged human element of battle, you know, or running a starship even, um, be a risk. And Daystrom will do that. But, I mean, it feels to me like if, if Starfleet had come to him and said, make a toaster that can save a planet, he'd have worked on that instead. <laughs> I mean, I don't, right. I don't feel like he's a war guy. I feel like yeah. he's, a, he's a very smart man who peaked early and now is trying to recapture a little of the uh, glory, uh, as, as Bruce Springsteen might sing. <laughs> right, right. And uh, uh, so throughout this whole thing, you know, Kirk keeps asserting that there are some things that man must do. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what, big surprise there, Ken? Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> I mean, you and me. I don't mean Kirk. I mean, you and me. <laughs> well, I, but you know what I thought? I, I thought about I thought about this uh, kind of ongoing debate ever since the end of the Apollo missions about uh, manned space travel you know this is this kind of argument about uh well we're we're pretty good so far at sending robots into uh you know out to mars and we send satellites and we send exploratory vessels out there um and then at the end of the at the end of the shuttle program we just kind of said, well, okay, we're, we're not in a real hurry to send human beings out there. But there's another argument to be made that says that, well, humans should be the ones to go out there, that humans can make decisions and humans can do things that robots can't do or that, uh, you know, purely uh, uh, scientific, uh, say, gathering devices can't do. So I, I, I don't know. I, I, I certainly can sympathize with Kirk here a he needs his job uh, mm-hmm. that's what he's good at <laughs> you know um and you kind of go back to this idea of you know this episode came out in 1968 uh, we still made cars in this country in 1968 a lot of cars 
and very cool cars that people wanted to buy. And you have to think that there was a contention that we're afraid of the idea of machines taking over and running us right out of a job, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, Actually, I did wonder um, whether this was an anti-computer or anti-automation episode. And I mm -hmm. do know that that was, it's so, it's funny to me because you and I now, you know, into the early part of the 21st century can look at the computers Mm -hmm. that they had in like the late 60s, early 70s and and Mm -hmm. kind of scoff, even though neither of us understand them. Right, right. Neither of us could have yeah, built them yeah. nor run them. No. Um, you know, we now have more uh, computing power on our phones than Ma Bell had running, you know, the telephone systems of major cities across the country. Um, all of that said, I do remember, I, I remember actually a, a, a an episode of the Partridge family. Oh. Where yeah. Laurie, uh, played by the lovely Susan Day, mm-hmm. um, was, was leading a, a picket line. Where people were chanting, uh, people yes, computers no, people yes, computers no, because there was like some automated something or other, and maybe it was, I don't know what it was. I don't even remember what the job was that they were, you know, concerned about, but it was a real, you know, concern at the time. That said, it sort of feels like that's an easy way to get us into, it was an, inter- it, it starts to be an interesting examination, not only of, of man's place in an automated society, but also uh, Kirk's place in Kirk's world, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked before about, and we've joked before about, you know, Kirk can't be happy unless he's, unless he's, you know, yelling at people or, right. or, or at least, you know, managing what people do. I shouldn't say yelling at people because he doesn't tend to yell that much. Yeah. Yeah. But he, he's, he's in command. Yeah. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's the yeah. top of the, of the pyramid as far as Kirk is concerned, where he's at the top of the pyramid. That's his, yeah. you know, version of self-actualization. And he's got, he's got like, you know, these moments of thinking, you know, man, man, is is Daystrom right? Is it really is is it really just that I'm insecure? I mean, I'm I'm young. There there are other things I could do. And then, oh, it turns out this machine is bad. So guess what? Whoo! I don't have to acknowledge what I'm doing. I just get to go off and be Captain Kirk again, right? Mm-hmm. It actually reminded me of of Obsession a little bit, where you know, Kirk's had eleven years to get over something, and he hasn't gotten over it. But then it's okay they didn't get over it because it turns out, oh, guess what? It wasn't your fault. And so now he's able to get over it. We have this, we have this, we have this chance to really examine Kirk. Kirk has a chance to really examine Kirk in this episode. Um, but then it turns out things go, you know, things go to pot. And so he doesn't have to examine himself now. He just has to go oh, ahead right. and just go ahead and be the, you know, be the, be the be prepared Boy Scout, not the, you know, angel Boy Scout that... He was accused of being by his illegitimate son years later. <laughs> the be prepared Boy Scout, you know, take this to take this thing, you know, back in control. And thank goodness I don't have to worry about, you know, that. Well, because- to their credit, they, they, they do let Kirk have that moment of reflection, you know, the, the, and it is just a moment. And you described it with Bones bringing in the drink um, <laughs> where, where he gets to ask himself that. But, yeah, it, it is kind of like the uh, he, well, he gets to ask himself, but he doesn't he doesn't have to answer it. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It's kind of like no, what? no, no, no. That, that's that is right where I was going. Oh, okay. that, yeah. well, never mind. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, oh, hey, we we learned that the uh, the penalty for murder is death. Yeah. Since when? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I know, since right? now I know. But we all since learned now. in uh, in both uh, the cage and the menagerie that the only thing that'll get you the death penalty is um, 
is going to Talos 4. Yeah, which actually seems like a better deal than uh, being on a spaceship run by a computer that goes around destroying other spaceships. I know, right? Because yeah. if you go to Talos 4, even if they're going to kill you, the Talosians could convince you the whole time that you hadn't been killed. Right. Wow. <laughs> Ever. That's, I know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a much better... Yeah. How do they, how do they, by the way, how do they go to Talos 4 to kill you? Oh, it yeah. It just occurred to me. Because if I go to Talos 4 and then they're like, well... He's got to be killed. Do they have to wait for me to leave Talos 4? Because I think I wouldn't at that point. It's the whole problem with Talos 4. As soon as a, as a starship gets nearby, they get sucked in, and it's just more starships. Exactly. And we need to build more cages. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Oh, well, we'll be topside no time, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Say the right. giant, soft-brained people of Talos 4. Well, I, I call them people. They're Talosians, but... Uh, they're they're Talosian people. That's a whole other episode for a, a past time. Right. I think. Do you think that one of M5's problems is specifically Daystrom's ego and his motivations and his beliefs? Because, I, I mean, this episode is making a good case for the, the problem with machines. You can't let a machine take over, certainly not if you side with Kirk. Um but we're also showing Daystrom's kind of psychological breakdown and uh, his, his whole implosion, like you described, his his need to achieve and exceed his past glory. I, would this machine be okay if it was a different person or if maybe Daystrom had, uh, had worked on this with other people, maybe share that glory a little bit to try to program out some of those problems? That crop up later? Uh, I mean, I think if Daystrom hadn't taken the shortcut, I mean, yeah. which may sound, you know, crazy because we're talking about a hyper-intelligent. We're talking about the ultimate computer for crying out loud or, you know. We are. Right. Maybe near the ultimate computer. He seems to have taken the shortcut of just imprinting his brain onto it. I don't think any brain should have been imprinted onto it because anybody can go loopy. I mean, you actually need yeah. something more like um, Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, right? Yeah. I mean, you need some sort of fail-safes because – Daystrom, even if he has the best of intentions, is uh, a living person who, you know, will fight to survive. Mm-hmm. And and so by just willy nilly putting that into, you know, an ultimate killing machine, oddly enough, it will now also want to fight to survive. So, I mean, you might argue that putting anybody's brain in there without any sort of fail safes or any sort of, uh, you know, any sort of rules um it is a mistake it, but it's be, interesting be it, that we oh go ahead well Sorry. no be it daystrom or spock or whoever maybe yeah. spock the only problem is you know, seven years from now the enterprise <laughs> might go crazy trying to hop another spaceship <laughs> <laughs> on far is no joke when you've got the killing power of a starship behind you right <laughs> well that we almost touched on the the three laws of robotics i mean when when Kirk uh, figures it out and does his word foo mm-hmm. on the M5 uh, that the M5 must protect itself, but the M5 must not kill. Like, we're almost there with the three laws. And you'd think that a guy as smart as Daystrom could have made that leap to to work in that sort of fail safe. Um, I but guess he didn't read enough Asimov. You would, well, you would also think that a, a computer as smart as M5 would understand that there were people on the ships that it was killing. Right. I mean, right. so that was sort of a the word foo thing. You want to talk about um, you want to talk about the elephant in the room? Oh, can we? Yeah, go for it. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm going to let you. Violates the laws of what and who now? God and man. Yeah. Man and God. All right. God and man. Well, here's the thing. Okay. So I, I don't think this is a, a huge elephant. Um, I, I think that we're, we're doing two things here. All right. Um, first of all, M5 is programmed by Daystrom. Right. And, and not only is he programmed by Daystrom, but it is Daystrom's engrams that are implanted onto M5. So whatever M5 does, we have to assume that this is a window into Daystrom. He comes at this with his own beliefs, his own preconceptions. Um, so if, if Daystrom has this in his mind about um, there are laws of man and there are laws of God, Daystrom may have a religious background that we obviously don't have the time in a TV show to really explore. Um, but yeah, this could very well be something that is a part of M5's programming. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I'm not too surprised by that. I'm also not too surprised because in pretty much all religious texts and all religious beliefs, just like in all secular beliefs and human uh, uh, constructs of morality and law, um, not killing is pretty much right there at the top of the list. Um, this is a good policy overall. So it is kind of hard to understand why M5 doesn't get that right from the beginning, you know, destroying ships where he has killed people. It has killed people. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I didn't really struggle with that at all. Um, did, did you have any kind of other weird take on it? Or Well, no. I mean, I thought it was not necessarily support for a you know Federation-wide belief in God in the 23rd century. It was <laughs> surprising to me, though, how casually it was said. Now, mm-hmm. we it seems to me that we had much more in the first season of Star Trek. We had much more... This was an idea that we used to have. Mm-hmm. And in the second season, for whatever reason, or for whatever reasons, uh, this is more of like an accepted idea that we have today. Whether mm-hmm. it's actually an idea that you know we had in the 60s, whether it's an idea that we have in the early 2000s, or whether it's an idea that we're going to have in the 23rd century. The, the, the references to it seem to be more casual and seem to be more prevalent in the second season than they are in the first. And I don't know if that's a, if that's a you know, different writers, if it's a yeah. somebody got tired of you know, fighting. I don't know what that <laughs> is. Um, but no, it didn't, it didn't strike me as, as making any kind of statement, except that it's, you know, it, it is stated. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's not something I'm used to hearing uh, regularly. On, well, uh, it, on Star Trek at this point. Yeah, and, and I kind of felt the same way, that it, it is a, a little out of place, but then I thought, well, okay, it, you can make a case for it fitting um, in this particular instance. Like yeah. I said, because, because of Daystrom, you know. The thing that I kind of came back to is that, you know, by the end of the show, we're saying that compassion is the key element. Compassion is the thing that keeps us in check. So then... You, you know, we, we step away from just the idea of this being a law, you know, whether it's God's law or man's law, and that is a very black and white thing, uh, which takes the onus off of our understanding of a situation, our understanding of empathy and compassion. And we talked about this uh, a little before, uh, like within uh, Mirror Mirror, um, is compassion that thing that keeps us in check? And I, I, I'd say yes. You know, the idea of morality, 
coming from uh, at its core this ability to empathize, this ability to have compassion and empathy for another creature, certainly another human being, you know. Um, and, and in that case, yeah, you don't need to invoke law where, wherever that law may come from, wherever you your beliefs may lie. Um, that is just sort of a a simple core human thing that uh, that we get to celebrate at the end of this episode. Yeah, the one problem I have, and I don't, I didn't want to get into it because I couldn't figure out where it goes. I mean, this is mm-hmm. just where, where I then began ranting. You know, I think about things like the healthcare debate, or I think about things like uh, the minimum wage fight that's going on right now. We build Mm -hmm. systems that demand. Yeah. We build systems that demand things that that leave really no room for compassion. Yeah. And even though we're all people, and we're all sitting here saying, you know, we're all people, and, and we're humans, and humans have to take care of humans, and humans should look out for whatever, we are willing to stand back and go, but shareholders expect profit. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah, but, or but you we're know willing what? to stand back and say, "Well, but there is security to consider." I mean, there's there there. I love the idea that 50 years ago we sort of solved a lot of these things, except we're not we're nowhere close. Well, but here's the thing, you know that that's what's good about a show like Star Trek or any kind of fiction that that can make you do that. It, it is the reminder. It's the thing that says, "Hey, even though we keep building institutions and and we keep." sort of dehumanizing certain things, like you said, healthcare or a legal system or whatever, we have to remember that we are also human beings who have a, a compassionate, empathetic streak and um, sort of this inherent moral obligation to those other individuals, as badly out of hand as it might get. Assuming that one of the messages is that humans totally rock, and computers totally do not, what other messages, morals, and meanings can we take from the ultimate computer? With the relentless precision of a driven computer, along with the compassion of a human, we find ourselves barreling down to the end of another episode of Mission Log, which means it is time, like clockwork to answer the questions about the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode and whether or not they stand the test of time. Uh, John Champion, does the ultimate computer hold up in your opinion? You know what? There are a few minor oddities here. I love that you point out that uh, we have a crew of 400 people who are being held in detention. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so there, there are some really strange things like that. But, but overall, I think this is, this is right up there uh, – in the top episodes of season two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, uh, the pacing, the drama, the debate that, that you get to have in this episode uh, is just really great. A lot of that is due to uh, the acting. I think that, yeah, of course our regular crew is really good, but I think William Marshall as uh, Dr. Daystrom is fantastic. Um, and there's some genuine tension there when m5 starts going crazy and destroying things and people um yeah i you know this is a a bottle show meaning that the entire thing takes place on the existing sets of the enterprise it was kind of inexpensive to make but i i like it when a drama can hold you 
because of its very tight confines. Very few characters, very few sets, go. Um, I love it. Does it hold up as a production? Uh, Absolutely. It it looks great. The tension is there. The drama is there. I think it's fantastic. How about you? Um, Yeah, it's good. (laughs) No, I like it. I mean, it's uh, Mm -hmm. about the only thing it suffers from is, again, the way you and I watch these and the way that we, you know, watch them and rewatch them and rewatch them. Mm -hmm. These are ideas that we have visited before. Now, that said, they're well presented. I would say, Mm -hmm. actually, the arguments uh, or the potential arguments in this episode are are more well presented than they were in iMud. But uh, we spent more time on them in iMud because they were relatively new ideas then. Like this whole idea of you guys stay on a planet and, you know, really get to work, you know, growing yourselves rather than just this, you know, constant busy work of going out and finding a new planet. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's, so... uh, if it suffers from anything, it suffers from there are a few ideas that we've hit before. Uh, that said, I do love seeing the king of cartoons do something besides going <laughs> and now a cartoon, you know. Um, and it is you're right; it is fun. I hadn't really thought about it, but it is fun that we don't have a planet that we have to look past on this episode. You know, we don't have to go. Eh, mm-hmm. Well, oh look, it's Vasquez rocks. Again, or mm-hmm. oh yeah, look at that—the red background because we're on this planet. It is kind of neat to put, as you say, a bottle episode. It is—it is neat to see that work. And I would say yeah. overall, it works. About the only thing that bothered me about it was, I guess, if you were watching Star Trek like most people do today, oh, I'm flipping channels, and oh, there was an episode of Star Trek. Oh, it was this really good one? There was this guy who did this thing. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you were kind of catching it casually, definitely works. If you're if you're studying it. Yes, it still works. It, the only thing it suffers from is it's worked a time or two before. Yeah, I, and that, but that's fine. I mean, I think that that is that's one of those perennial topics that will keep coming back. Is you know our relationship to technology mm-hmm. certainly is interesting to work watch uh, Kirk <laughs> sort of uh, deal with that. Um, because we, we know his position a lot. And I think one of the things that goes unexplored here is the idea of when Daystrin asserts that, well, with these computers in place, man can go do other things. Well, what are those other things? Like, what, what is this world that you're envisioning where you you take that job away <laughs> of building spaceships, flying spaceships, doing all this stuff? What what do we get to do? I, and, well, you know, I, I just talk to Norman. Right. Talk to Norman about that. I actually had in my notes that Daystrom would love Norman's robot gut. He would absolutely <laughs> just totally love that because that seems to be the kind of thing that he's going for. Now, of course, again, that goes back to the argument of is that really what he's going for or is he just going for whatever's going to make him famous, stop people from laughing at him for having done his last really good work 25 years earlier? You know, it's too bad that in uh, the original series, we were kind of short-sighted from one episode to another because this is one of those examples where uh, Dr. Dayson could really benefit from a lot of the other things we have visited. He could maybe benefit from a visit to the uh, the penal colony in uh, Dagger of the Mind, maybe, you know, settle him down a little bit. <laughs> and then maybe, then maybe you drop him off with Norman and the other uh, bots on the uh, Harry Mud world, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. So uh, I'm just I'm trying to think big here. Uh, you know, the, the Enterprise could really do a good business dropping people off at the planets where they belong. <laughs> you know, I don't think you're wrong about that. I <laughs> okay. don't think you're wrong about that. So then uh, so let's do the messages part. I mean, do you feel like 
it feels like it would be very easy to say this is an anti-automation, you know, don't give up control kind of episode. Yeah, yeah. First of all, computers are no damn good. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Well, no, they're okay to a point. Yeah. They're good servants. You just wouldn't want to serve under one. I guess that really is the message because, I mean, when Spock says that, I mean, Spock's word is law, generally speaking, you know, unless he's happy, in which case, (laughs) don't listen to Spock. Come on. Don't trust him. Oh, and also if he finds somebody that he wants to, you know, talk to a little bit more, maybe if you don't figure out how they work, eh, don't listen to Spock. But when Spock says, you know, eh, computers, eh, they're fine for what they do, but come on, we need people. People like mm-hmm. you, Jim, blink, mm-hmm. blink, blink, you know, <laughs> then, then Spock's spot on. Um, is it, I mean, is it as simply put as an anti-automation episode as not giving up control or is it sort of what you alluded to earlier more a you know compassion is actually key if we're going to uh, you know keep this globe spinning and maybe go find a few more yeah well that seems to be the the final word there i I mean i i think for an audience in 1968 the this fear of computers, the fear of uh, being automated out of a job. This had to feel very real. And not that it can't or doesn't feel real today, um, but but I think it was especially true of that audience at that time. They weren't used to having computers everywhere. You didn't have a computer in your pocket that you could just, you know, whip out where you're walking down the street and then, you know, look up where you're going to have dinner that night or something like that. So uh, the 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 misunderstanding had to have felt more acute. Um, And and I think that's what this show is really going for. Um, There's also a message in here, I think, about, um, you know, they they allude to this with uh, Daystrom treating M5 like a child. And I think being too too in love with your own creations, too concerned about your own ego when it comes to uh, the, the work that you do and uh, sort of getting, getting wrapped up in all of that. So it, it is interesting to watch his psychological downfall. Um, but I do think that ultimately at the end of the day, um, they kind of throw it at you, this thing about human compassion being the necessary element for our continued growth and our continued success. That seemed to really be the the more beautiful, sort of more positive message out of this episode. Mm-hmm. There's also a bit of Frankenstein. I thought more than once about, you know, the whole Frankenstein idea. And this oh, well, sure. Yeah. Which, which is not about compassion, but... I mean, you could certainly uh, attack on, apply, lay over a layer of, you know, don't play God. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that all of that holds up. Well. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, I don't know where I am on the whole artificial intelligence thing, but maybe don't go with the fifth one. I, I understand he yeah, had done yeah, one no. through four, and it felt like he'd been working for a long time, but maybe start with an M20, you know, yeah, <laughs> before you. And then, you know, do like the good people at Google. Give it a car. There you go. Give <laughs> it a car. Don't give it a yeah. giant exploration slash killing ship. Ha- have a lot of people on your team. Yes. And program out the bugs. You oh, know, just go ahead. Make it open source. Just go ahead and make it open source so and, other people can get in there and uh, and mess with it. And also, I understand this was not the message, but seriously, don't just detain 400 people for no reason. That's just That's just bad karma no. waiting to happen. Yeah, if we learned anything uh, <laughs> from, uh, I, I think, from Obsession, these people are tired, and they could really <laughs> use some time at the Shoreleave planet. 
that, that that would be good. Or you know what? Maybe they'd like to spend some time at the arena. Oh, you know, it's so funny you should mention that, Ken. Everybody loves a day at the arena. And in fact, next week, why don't we go to the arena and talk about bread and surfaces? Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Kirk tells Spock and Scotty to disconnect M5 in case it changes its mind. Kirk gives an inspiring speech, we're gonna die. There's a little more, but that's basically it. <laughs> Sorry. That's funny as hell. Cracks me up. <laughs> I love it. Sorry about that. Uh. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Nerdist.com. <laughs>